Well, thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm glad to see so many people interested in ecological areas in this part of the country. And uh, I, I, I enjoyed the hike around Lake Nixon. He's apologizing that he dragged me all over the place. But I went home in such a good mood, thinking it was such a beautiful day. And the people at home are like, oh, it's miserable out today. And I didn't feel that way at all. Uh, so this, um, I have a lot of things I want to say today. So I'm going to try and go fairly quickly, save up questions for the end. Andy wants me to talk for 40 minutes. So we'll see if I can do it. I'll probably have to cut it short. Uh, but I'm prepared to do that. So I thought the best way to start tonight, and can you all hear me? Okay. Uh, the best way to start is to reverse what Andy said. He says he's not a scientist. He's, you know, he knows about religion. Well, I don't know much about religion, but I am a scientist. <laughs> uh, so I thought it might make sense to talk about how science differs from other subjects. Okay, so this is a list of some subjects that humans investigate. Science and then all these others. And I would argue that all of these others are different from science. So science studies how the natural world works. And we use observations, experiments, models, and we test our models and ideas against the natural world. And if our models don't match the natural world, we go back and change the model. And we progress by consensus. You know, if you're persuasive enough that you know how the world works, you will persuade other people that your view is right. Um, and that's what makes science different from the rest of these other fields. So let me give you an example. Can we use evidence, like Galileo did, to decide whether the sun goes around the earth or whether the earth goes around the sun? And Galileo made observations that persuaded other people that the earth and the other planets go around the sun. Um, and that view has not changed since the 15 and 1600s when he was alive. Now, think about art. Can you say which is better, Picasso or Monet? No, you can't. Now, I think, given what you know about my background, you would say, I, oh, I keep thinking it's here, I would like Monet better than I would like Picasso. And you're absolutely right. Um, but there is no standard of in, in the natural world about which one is better. They're different. And then thirdly, third example, can you determine if Christianity is better or worse than Buddhism or some other uh, religion? And I would argue that you cannot decide which one is better because there is no outside standard. You can, you can say this is better for me, but that might not necessarily be true for the next person. So there, that's because there isn't an outside reference point that uh, you can compare art or religion to. But in science, we do have outside reference points. Um, now, I want to emphasize this point that the fact that science is different in having a reference point from other fields doesn't mean it's better, and I don't think it means it's worse. Uh, it's different, but all these fields have their value. Their value okay? So I just wanted to say I look at things based on evidence. All right, so now let's talk about what ecology is. And basically, I think ecology is interactions of organisms and 
their environment. So their environment might be the physical environment. You do not see penguins in the tropics, okay? Uh, so it's too hot for the penguins there. Um, but you also have individuals of a given species interacting with other members of the same species. So they might have courtship rituals, for example, um, and populations grow. But then whole species interact with other species. So you have predator-prey interactions, you have pollination interactions, and so that's why I say ecology is the science of studying interactions of organisms and their physical and biological environment. All right, so getting to what are, what are our neighbors. Uh, the scientists who have studied organisms and communities in Arkansas have divided Arkansas into six different regions. So we have the Ozarks, which are mountainous, mostly forested, Arkansas River Valley, Washita's, another mountainous area with um, lots of forest, coastal plain where the soils are quite different, uh, and then the Mississippi alluvial plain, and alluvial just means um, uh, related to streams and rivers. So this area has all been um, all been uh, covered at one time by the Mississippi River uh, as it has moved its banks. And then there's this really interesting place called this narrow little thing here, narrow little thing, Crowley's Ridge. And I'm from the Northeast. I drove up there in the summer and I felt like I was home. It's the southernmost region of some species distributions. And the next, uh, next, next specimen of a given species might be a couple of hundred miles to the north. So it's a remnant of a community that used to live there. The red star is Little Rock, and I'm gonna show you some pictures of different places that are preserved by Arkansas Natural Heritage, and I will put blue triangles to show you where they are. Now, this is a very rough description of the regions of Arkansas. You can get more detailed. Huh, you want me to talk about all those? No, I think it would be boring uh, to just recite the different characteristics of, the, of these uh, habitats. So I'm gonna show you pictures of some places uh, that have been preserved because they are very unique areas in Arkansas. So let's think about what a habitat is. Forests and prairies or grasslands would be two. Wetlands, which would include swamps. Um, and then there are things called glades, which are small areas within usually forests, and they're very different from, and usually there's really crappy soil or no soil, so not much grows there. And some places, um, the animals in there are very interesting, like uh, collared lizards in, in some glades. So they're very distinct from other places. But then we have streams and lakes, and I could give you more types. We don't need that. All right, now what determines what organisms occur in a given area? And really there's three major, major things. Temperatures uh, could be both the maximum and the minimum, could be average. The amount of water, which could be rainfall or how much stays in an area versus how much leaves, and then soil. And I'm gonna give you some examples of how soil will determine what community there is. Um, and what plants occur in an area determines in large part 
what animals occur in an area. All right, so I did tell you a minute ago that Arkansas Natural Heritage has, they actually have 75 natural areas that are preserved across the state. And they have inventoried many places uh, to find the most <laughs> ecologically significant areas, whatever that means. It just means the ones that they think are most different from other things. Maybe they have rare plants, maybe they have rare animals, um, maybe they have rare combinations of plants and animals. And they protect those areas, they monitor the areas, and then they regulate them. Mostly there's no hunt, I, maybe totally no hunting. Um, but they keep track of it. And they are still adding um, natural areas. I'll show you one that just opened last fall. Um, there are other groups that um, protect areas. Nature Conservancy is a big one. And lots of times what you see is that Nature Conservancy purchases land and gets it set up and transfers it to natural heritage. Um, but we also have um, Arkansas State Parks being involved. Uh, there are National Wildlife Refuges. There are Game and Fish Commission has um, uh, uh, natural areas that they also protect. All right, so the first place we're going is just southwest of Arkansas, uh, of Little Rock. Uh, this is Lawrence Creek, and it may be that it's really called Lawrence Creek, but the way I've heard it mostly said is Lawrence. Uh, it's 390 acres, and it's a shallow swamp, and it's a real mosaic of open water, pine trees, upland hardwood forests. So hardwood forests would be things like hickories and oaks and maples, uh, as opposed to pines. Uh, and they have, I'll show you a picture, bald cypress swamps, and then sandy washes, which is gonna be real sandy type of soil where the water drains out quickly. Uh, and the plant material or the plant community in these little pockets is probably not much in the way of trees. So here's a, here's a picture of Lawrence Creek. And it has a boardwalk that's quite short, but it's nice. People think it's a great place to bird. It's a uh, great, you're gonna love this. It's a great place to see snakes. <laughs> um, but it's a really, really nice um, place, and especially nice because it's so close to Little Rock. Here's bald cypress, uh, and this is just one animal example of a marbled salamander, which I would expect that these things are breeding right now, really early. This next one is Rattlesnake Ridge, which is west of Little Rock, and it is the newest, it opened last fall. They're real excited about it. I haven't, I haven't been there, um, but I, it's quite steep and rugged to climb, uh, but it has fabulous views and interesting plants. It, it provides habitat for three species, quote, of special concern. Doesn't mean they're endangered, doesn't mean they're threatened, it means they're watching it because they're worried that the populations are in decline. So they have the southeastern bat, the western diamondback rattlesnake, and Wright's cliffbreak. I'll show you a picture. Um, and it's a rare community, rare for Arkansas. It is most similar to communities found in central Texas on the Edwards Plateau. Uh, so that's why they thought this was a good spot to preserve. So look at, look at how much vegetation there is up at the top. There's not a lot. It's very rugged um, and quite rocky. But you can see as high as it is, it's got great views. And here, this is a plant they're worried about, the population. 
writes cliff break. It's a fern. Who cares about a stupid little fern? <laughs> All right, I'm going to give you a reason later, I hope, to care. All right, another place uh, which is way southwest is White Cliffs Natural Area. And it's 573 acres, and it's on a chalk outcrop. So chalk is a rock that was uh, deposited by marine, marine, all right? There was, this was an ocean by marine organisms. And there are many communities in White Cliffs that are rare in Arkansas, and some of them are similar to those you can see in Texas. Ah, yes, chalk. It's sticking out. <laughs> it's not easy for plants to grow in that. But there are other parts of White Cliffs where there really are forests. Um, these trees are not very big. I don't know if these trees are small because they're young or because the soil is so bad they can't get bigger. Uh, and what, oh yeah, these are just two examples of flowers that occur in this area. I don't think either one of them are, I don't think they're worried about the decline of their populations. All right, now we're going to go to the Northwest, Devil's Eyebrow. I don't have any idea why it's called Devil's Eyebrow. But Devil's Eyebrow Natural Area, look at how big this one is. This is over 3,000 acres. Uh, and it's got a lot of different communities. So it has glades, so those are open pockets uh, where there's bad soil and you don't get a lot of, um, of trees in there. It's pretty bare, not a lot of plant growth. But hardwood forests, all right? Oaks, maples, um, hickories, uh, riparian forests, which are going to be a little bit different, and those run alongside the streams. And I'll show you a picture of one that I think is really beautiful. And then there are bluffs, which are not cliffs where it's straight down, but rounded areas where um, you get a lot of um, a lot of slope on it. And it's home to many rare species. And there are lots of caves because in the northwest part of Arkansas, we have a lot of limestone, which is similar to the chalk. So there's lots of caves. This is, look at, look at the cover. This, this is a beautiful place. And here's a riparian stream. Look at how, you know, and you get more, get more sunlight right along the stream as opposed to deep in the forest. So you get some different species and some lower, lower plants close to the ground. And you get a cave salamander, all right? So that there are species that live only in caves. Uh, and they do, they have a lot of concern about, in this general area, a lot of concerns about bat species populations. All right. Next place, we're going to go to the northeast corner, State Line Sand Pods, Ponds Natural Area. This is not as big, the 167 acres. Uh, I think it is connected to some uh, other preserved areas. Mix of forest types that almost everything around it is farmland. So it's saving a remnant of what used to be a lot bigger. Pleistocene landscape remnants. Pleistocene? Ah. Oh. When were the when was the pli that's when we had mammoths. Okay? So pretty old. Um, and there are sand dunes and pond complexes mixed in together. So what does this look like? Be nice to be there. And notice that the trees are not terribly close together there. And this, this place has pondberry, which is an endangered species, federally endangered species. Uh, and it occurs in some of the other areas that I'm showing you today. Um, but 
uh, you know, who cares about pond bearing? I hope you will in a few minutes. Another place, St. Francis Sunken Lands Natural Area. There's 80 acres, and so it's, it's west of Crowley's Ridge. Um, and it's called, it's bottomland forest, which means it's low, so it seasonally is flooded probably. And the trees might get really big. I haven't been to this bottomland forest, but I've been to one in um, South Carolina that has never been cut. Absolutely spectacular forest. Tall trees, big trees. I went there um, with a tennis team. And on a Sunday morning in August, nobody else wanted to go to this swamp with me. I don't understand. Because I was alone, I watched a barred owl fish. And he knew I was there. They're not, you know, I mean, it's spectacular kind of forest. I mean, really, right now I have chills up my spine thinking about that. Um, but there are big trees, wide and tall. Um, and this, this um, area has channels of water interspersed with slightly higher elevations. And when I say slightly higher, I mean three feet. So, you know, you have different plants when you're three feet above the average water level versus when you're down in the water. Um, and it has very diverse flora, including more pondberry. Look at this. This is a beautiful thing. How do you like that tree? Yeah. Oh, um, I, I, don't, I don't know what that tree is. Uh, so go find out. Tell me. And just a couple of, these are not necessarily <laughs> rare. I have a green dragon in my yard. It's a nice plant related to Jack in the Pulpit. All right, now let's think about prairies. Baker Prairie is... It's only 30 acres. It lies within the city limits of Harrison. Um, it once was part of 5,000 acres of tall grass prairie. There's only 30 acres left. And it has a number of rare plants and animals. This is my favorite picture in the whole slideshow. Okay, and then another you know, prairie. Yes, it's in the city. And, and I think there might be a boardwalk that you can walk. All of these areas that I'm showing you are open to the public. Um, but you can't take plants. You can't leave trash. You know, go. And your handout has a list of websites where you can find out about these. And shooting stars are there. There's lots of nice plants. But now if we go to the southern part of the state, we see, can, can see Warren Prairie, which is over 5,000 acres, has very varied communities. It has forests, but it has open areas. So, you know, it says it's prairie. Well, there's some forest areas too, which is good because there's an endangered species that lives in the forested areas. Here's um, one picture. You can see pines, but then you've got these saw palmettos, which look much more uh, tropical than what you see other places. Ah, yes, I guess it, at least parts of it is a prairie. And here are the two endangered species, or threatened and endangered. Tiny Tim, another stupid little plant. Uh, and the red cockaded woodpecker, which uh, Natural Heritage is monitoring and um, uh, they just, this past fall, they transported some red cockaded woodpeckers from a place in Louisiana to this population because this population is doing pretty well and they want to keep it going. So Natural Heritage has 75 natural areas. And your handout has the URL 
that goes with this picture. Nature Conservancy currently has 16, but there are 52 Arkansas State Parks, 130 Game and Fish Commission Wildlife Management Areas, 10 U.S. Fish and Wildlife Refuges. Okay. What are the ecological parts? So that's the end of the, the picture tour. I have others that I took out because I thought this was going to go way too long. And if you want to see others, I'll show them at the end. Uh, but I know you've talked in this series about climate change and acidification of oceans. There are lots of ecological problems. But the one that I'm focusing on today is loss of biodiversity. So the question I'm posing to you is, if we have as many natural areas as what I just explained, do we really need to worry about conserving biodiversity? And the answer I'm going to give you is yes. Um, so why should we protect biodiversity? One, enjoyment of nature. You feel good if you're out there. Uh, you know, unless maybe you're worrying about snakes. Um, my neighbor <laughs> across the street <laughs> freaks out. Um, but the, I've read some reports recently that the enjoyment that people get from nature is really r helps their immune systems. Um, so, you know, just enjoying it is one thing, but then it can benefit you personally. There are moral reasons, and I expect that that's why a lot of you are here, moral ethical reasons for conserving our neighbors, do unto others, you know. Uh, but then what I want to talk about now is protection of ecosystem services, that ecosystems provide services for us, and that is a very good reason to protect them. So there are nine that uh, I could talk about. Uh, since we're not going to be here for three hours, I'm only going to talk about four, and I'm going to leave the last one till the very end of tonight. Um, but the four that I'm going to talk about are production of ecosystem goods, purification of air and water, mitigation of floods, droughts, and erosion. But there's also moderation of weather, soil services, pollination, pest control, and seed dispersal. All right, so production of ecosystem goods. This is why we care about these stupid little plants. This pink thing is the rosy periwinkle, and it's from Madagascar, off the coast of Africa. Uh, and it contains a compound that treats childhood leukemia and other cancers. And the Pacific U has a compound that treats breast cancer and other cancers. Uh, it's been pretty effective for many people with that. And both of these, we can manufacture the compound in the lab. So we don't have to harvest Madagascar, the rosy periwinkle, or the uh, Pacific U. We can make it in the lab, but if we didn't have those plants, we wouldn't have discovered those drugs. Now, um, this is a picture of a leafcutter <coughs> ant. Uh, and leafcutters are very common in tropical areas. They climb up trees, they cut out semicircles of, of leaf, they crawl down the tree, and then they take them to the nest, which is underground, and they grow fungus in the warm, moist environment. They grow the fungus on the leaves that they've cut. So they're farming. They're farming the fungus. Well, warm, moist envir environments are perfect for fungal growth, but there's only one species of fungus in the nest because they have com the ants have compounds on their bodies that help control the weedy fungus species. Now, how easy is it for humans to cure fungal infections? 
It's not that easy. And so we don't have drugs yet from, uh, from um, leafcutter ants, but we might in the future. And who would have who thunk it? So that's a good reason to preserve species. All right, another example of, of an ecosystem service is purification of air and water. New York City built pipes to go from the uh, Poconos and other places upstate New York. They built pipes that brought water all the way down to New York City, so from here down. But the EPA was testing water, and at some point, they were approaching limits of compounds in the water that would have forced New York City to build water purification plants. Expensive. Think about how many people are in New York City. They've been drinking untreated water. All right, well, what they ended up doing is protecting the area around the reservoirs that, that collected the water. So if you protect the area around and make sure that you don't have sewage draining into it, for example, <coughs> you can protect the quality of the water that goes down to the sea. And they did a cost analysis and discovered it was a lot cheaper to preserve the land in the Catskills and Poconos than to build water treatment plants. And the, the third one that I'm going to talk about now is mitigation of floods, drought, and erosion. So this is a map of the coast of Louisiana. So New Orleans is in the center of the center at the top. Um, the, the yellowish areas is land that is either has disappeared or is projected to disappear by 2050. And this land helps buffer the southern part of Louisiana from storms. And what's happening in Louisiana is that the land is sinking. The land is some by the coastline is disappearing. And of course, oceans are rising. So they are more at risk of floods than they were even probably before Katrina. So if we can change how that land is used, we can help protect New Orleans and other parts of Louisiana. Okay, so if we take care of intact ecosystems, we can protect humans better then we, and, and, and we can't do it all with technology. So let me, let me re-explain that. That we build sewage treatment plants, whereas once upon a time, when we were much lower populations, we didn't have to, bar, buy, we didn't have to produce sewage treatment plants. Well, we could, but New York City could build technology to solve the water problem coming in. But it's not, as it's not as cost effective as protecting the land. And the deal is, is that ecosystem services, we do not value them in terms of money because we don't pay for them. So you need to have intact ecosystems to provide these services. You might want to ask me questions about that later. All right, so let's think about how we are going to preserve nature. You can preserve areas. Generally, the bigger, the better. Um, and uh, we can save individual species. There are breeding programs. 
at the very end, I have a picture of a hooping crane. Once upon a time, there were 15 hooping cranes in the US, and now the population has gone up a lot because we have had a breeding program for them and reintroducing them. One five. Sure. That's right. That's right. Uh, but that's not, I mean, we can't do that with every single species. You know, now, hooping cranes are pretty impressive birds. Uh, if you know what a great blue heron is, this is a bird that's probably 25% bigger than a great blue heron. And apparently, I've not, I've seen videos, but they hoop when they do these courtship rituals. Um, and hopefully, I'm going to see some next week. Um, so we could, that's a second approach. Um, and, but those, both preserving areas and saving individual species are big things that you don't do. Um, you can give time, you can give money, uh, but there is another small way to help. And that is to plant native species in your yards. This is a picture of Doug Tallamy, who's, um, uh, an entomologist and ecology at, ecologist at the University of Delaware. And he's making the point that 85% of the land in the U.S. is privately owned. We cannot preserve enough land to, to provide all the ecosystem purchases, uh, ecosystem services. He recommends that what we do is get rid of half of our lawns and replace it with native woody plants and herbaceous plants. So it's, you know, it's uh, those flowers that I showed you are herbaceous. They grow up, when the get frost comes, they die back. So woody plants, you need them because they, um, uh, they provide a lot of uh, food for insects that eat the plant, that the birds eat them, and we get complex uh, food webs, and you can contribute in some way to maintaining ecosystem services. Okay, now I told you I was, I was going to um, mention at the end, I didn't think I was going to have time, so I, I hope you were able to keep up with me. And I know in past weeks, they've given you reading assignments. Uh, so I'm giving you a reading assignment. I, I used to end my ecology classes with, with this. And I would tell the students, close your eyes, promise me not to fall asleep. And listen, this is Aldo Leopold writing in the 1940s. He's a conservationist. And the title of this is if I were the wind. Just listen. The wind that makes music in the November corn is in a hurry. The stalks hum, the loose husks whisk upward in half playful swirls, and the wind hurries on. In the marsh, long windy waves surge across the grassy sloughs, beat against the far willows. This is in Wisconsin. A tree tries to argue bare limbs waving, but there is no detaining the wind. On the sandbar, there is only the wind and the river sliding seaward. Every wisp of grass is drawing circles on the sand. I wander over the bar to a driftwood log where I sit and listen to the universal roar and to the tinkle of wavelets on the shore. The river is lifeless, not a duck, heron, marsh hawk, or gull, but has found refuge from the wind. Out of the clouds, I hear a faint bark as of a faraway dog. It is strange how the world cocks its ear at the sound, wondering. Soon it is louder, the honk of geese, invisible, but coming on. The flock emerges from the low clouds, a tattered banner of birds, dipping and rising, blown up and blown down, blown together and blown apart, but advancing. The wind wrestling, wrestling lovingly with each winnowing wing. When the flock is a, a blur in the sky, 
I hear the last honk sounding taps for the summer. It is warm behind the driftwood now, for the wind has gone with the geese. So would I if I were the wind. This guy loves this piece. <coughs> so, so I hope, and here's a picture of a hooping crane. Uh, this was at Hollabend uh, in October or November. Uh, they are spectacular things. They used to be 15. Now they're over 1,000, I think, or clo 800, something. So, you know, <clears throat> if you get a chance to see one, you should. So, thank you very much. I'll be. Hollabend is uh, near Russellville. Yeah. Um, so, I'm open for questions if you want to have. Qu yes. Janet, please. You know, currently, when we talk about ecology, Concerned about climate, you know, we tend to hear about the Arctic melting ice, the coastal areas because of the sea level rise. But you know, Arkansas we call ourselves a national state, and in your experience, you know, teaching and living here, what kind of changes are you seeing within our state as a result of? I I I do think the winters are not as cold as they were when I first came here. Uh, I don't, I don't know enough about climate change specifically for Arkansas. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, though, that we do, we are experiencing climate change and that is caused by, even though a lot of people, a lot of politicians argue against it, even though they say, well, we don't know that it's caused by humans. Could be sunspots. I think it's humans. Yeah. Anybody? Yeah, Andy. So you brought up all kinds of news and invited us to ask, so I, I did want to hear more about um, what it means for an ecosystem to be intact, right? Because we, we lose all the, the nine things, the nine services you were talking about, and the ecosystem is no longer intact. So yeah. Could you In explain more about what that means? Intact means keeping, keeping the species that were there originally. Okay. You know, I mean, it's hard to imagine that we can keep every single species but we certainly can keep the majority of them. Um, and we, can, we need to try and connect preserves one to the next so that if, if a species here goes extinct in this reserve, that there's the population is OK here, and you have a corridor where they can, can move. So it's um, complicated. There's a big, big area of study about how to make corridors and allow transfer like that, you know, and I, mean, I guess I saw a picture in the news recently about an overpass for, um, for animals to cross an interstate. You know, the interstate is fenced. Um, sometimes people, there are tunnels too that, you know, little things, turtles and stuff can go across, but overpasses for the animals, um, I've seen some pictures of that recently. So you want to keep, you especially want to keep some of the big animals too, even though, they, you know, I'm not sure I want to see a bear in my backyard. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you need the top, the top predators uh, to help control things lower. Um, there's some interesting studies about Yellowstone, and you can see videos of this. Um, they reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone. And the wolves had an immense impact on the plants. Because of the wolves, and they were hunting elk, elk didn't stay by the rivers, which meant that the plants along the rivers could grow. And that provided habitat for rabbits and beaver and changed the whole ecosystem. And, and that would be an example of a more intact than what was there somewhat before. How would you rate the potential for good ecosystems Oh, geez. <laughs> good question. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the less you interfere with it, the better. Is the whole thing fenced? No, okay, so you can get movement in and out. 
Uh, but I mean, you have 200 acres, don't you? Two th you know, that's a that's a nice size piece of property. Um, you can, you know, you should be able to do a fair bit with it. I, you know, I would wonder about how high the deer population is. Um, when I was uh, working in western New York, I went to a, a national forest that was very profitable down in Pennsylvania. And the reason it was so profitable is that they had black cherry trees growing. And they wanted to know how, how much of an impact the deer were having. And so they built enclosures. They built three different enclosures of, I'm, I'm making up these numbers a little bit, one, 10, and 30 deer within the enclosure. And they thought that the average per acre was, one, was 10 deer. And so they enclosed them, put one deer, 10 deer, 30 deer in them. And then they let it go for a few years to see what the, what the plants were. Well, lots and lots of spring wildflowers where there was only one deer per acre. Um, 10 deer per acre, which is what they thought they had, still looked great compared to what was outside. And where they had 30 deer per acre, it still looked better than what was outside. And outside, there were almost no spring wildflowers because the deer were so high, the population was so high, you know. Uh, and so, I mean, I, the first thing I would ask is, what's the deer population out there? And, you know, and it might need to be culled, I, but I don't know. So, I mean, with 230 acres, you, you have a good shot. Yes. Well, I mean, I I only know what I've heard on the news, and that is the hog farms are providing lots of nutrients to the river. I mean, the two problems I know about along the Buffalo are hog farms, which provide nutrients into the river, um, and that changes the composition, uh, especially of mussels, um, and uh, you know it, it's you know, pretty high concentrations of pollutants, I think. The other problem is, is gravel mining. Um, and the gravel mining brings silt down, and that really affects mussels as well. And if you look at what species in Arkansas are endangered or threatened, the group that is most common on the list are, are clams and mussels from, from streams. Um, and uh, you know, and they used to be very abundant. Uh, I know that there are places along rivers where you can find Indian middens where there are lots of um, clamshells that have been, they harvested them for food. Probably not going to do that now. So, I mean, I, I, if I were voting about protecting the buffalo, I would protect it. Oh, good. The farm is closed. They have been paid. But here's the thing that I think people of Arkansas need to know. Because people of Arkansas now, they have to pay for the cost of, of taking care of the ponds where all the waste was sent. Mm. That's not a small price tag. So we pay $6 million that would come out with state money, so a million was from the Nature Conservancy. So that's been given to the owners. And so now the state has to clean up those ponds. And that process has started. Um, um, what I heard last night, and this is oh, that kind of irony where you want to go, what? 
So the ponds are big. I can't give you the size, but they'll have to be emptied. That waste has to be taken to a water treatment plant, either Harrison or somewhere that has one. And then when it's emptied, it has to be filled in with dirt and grass and then fertilized to get it going. Now that just blows my mind. But, you know, the whole problem was that whole area was it was in a karst topography. Caves, it's sprinkles, it's all sorts of things. And so all this waste from these ponds and where they were I'm I'm deliberate. No, keep going. You know, they were also dispersing uh, the waste from the hog areas on other fields. The phosphorus levels were through the roof getting into all the tributaries that go into the Buffalo. I could go on forever on this topic, but the bottom line is it's closed and um, uh, we need a permanent moratorium on all mm -hmm. of And that brings up another, another issue that's kind of far away from Arkansas, which is the dead zone in the, in the Gulf of, Mississippi, uh, Gulf of um, Mexico. Um, that this area has been growing and ecologists tend to think that it's phosphorus from farms that run off, that cause algal blooms, then the algae die, the bacteria decompose them and use up all the oxygen and you have this big zone where there's nothing alive on the bottom. So, I mean, ecology, you know, we have all these connections. So. My question is, how did it happen that we didn't see it happening? Um, <laughs> we can talk about that. But <laughs> <laughs> it seems so obvious. Follow the money. Yeah. Follow the money. Mm -hmm. Let mm -hmm. Big Bill Lincoln talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. Yes. Your gear story that you mentioned about these different plots and the impact, isn't that also the, the story of how the challenge to protect ecosystems because of the growing human population worldwide as they become more and more and more of us, similar to more and more deer on a particular spot, then we have more and more of a challenge with maintaining the, the ecosystems in the first place. Well, I mean, I think the deer population problem is because we've taken out the top predators. That, you know, deer used to be good food for wolves and other things. And if you're in the city, you can't hunt. Uh, so I, I, th I do think the root, though, of all of our environmental problems is too many people. All of it. If we had fewer people, you know, we're not going <coughs> to purposely kill off people. So <laughs> we might accidentally. <laughs> so. Yeah. 